Welcome to Diversity Connects Us. This podcast highlights lived experiences and inspirational stories of strength and tenacity. We will share profound and courageous dialogues that influence diversity, equity, and inclusion by breaking the barriers and labels of stereotypes, confronting biases, and offering best practices to achieve a more significant, cultural, and emotionally intelligent mindset. Welcome to part two of Creating Space for Race. So, you know, it requires a lot of introspection also on how to bring others along because we don't know where each individual is coming from. We all know that they do have a story. We know that that story is being rehearsed and, you know, it's a narrative that they've acquired over time. And that's the story that's being told also in corporate spaces, right? So I think also at the same time, there has to be, we just have to jump in. Yeah, there's no really good starting point that's going to work universally within an organization for everyone. Right. And so I work with a number of organizations and Michelle, you probably experienced this as well. And there's always this tension point among those who feel like we aren't moving fast enough. We aren't doing enough. We aren't really communicating this message in a way that is strong enough and we need to turn up the intensity, right? And then there are others that are saying, we have to help bring people along. We have to make sure we're meeting people where they are. We have to make sure that we're slow walking this. And so you have to somehow find some ways to meet in the middle. And for those who are ready to kind of go deeper and go deeper, how can we leverage that momentum for greater traction? And then also, how can we make sure that we aren't turning those off that are just unaware? Maybe they're on the fence because, again, that resistance is because of lack of clarity. And how do we take that into account? And so I believe that part of this is, is in our learning and development strategy and the different modalities that we are leveraging to help bring people along. Not everyone learns the same way. You're not going to be able to start at, you know, place Z. For someone who's just entering the conversation, right? You need to start at point A for them and then walk them through it. And so that's why I'm a big fan of not just having a one-size-fits-all approach around exposure and awareness as we are building people's knowledge and understanding around diversity, equity, and inclusion. We need to be leveraging strategies that include different tools, different modalities, different resources, you know, and different ways, different messengers, Right in order to help bring people along. And we can never feel like we have arrived at a place where we have communicated to the full extent because we need to even help people to unlearn misinformation, to relearn, right? And so it's a constant cycle. And sometimes we want to just check a couple boxes and feel like, okay, everybody should be already at the point that we want everyone to be. Now let's go. Right. And it's a continual process. I'm happy you said that. I was shared this It's called A Union of Professionals, American Educator, a journal of educational equity research and ideas. And just last night, I received this. And when I turned the page, it said exactly what you just said. So yes, indeed, he says here, his name is Eric Ward, and he's a nationally recognized expert on the relationship between authoritarian movements Mm-hmm. hate violence, and persevering inclusive democracy. He's also the recipient of a 2021 Civil Courage Prize, 
the first American in the awards of the 21st year's history. He currently serves as the executive director of Western States Center, which was created for the widely used at dismantling racism, organizational changes programs in the 90s, and currently equips educators with mm -hmm. confronting white nationalism in schools. So the article is very long, but one thing he did say here, he says racial prejudice and violence are learned and can be unlearned. Mm -hmm. They really can. It's a choice, though. The person has to be willing to even right. go through a process where they are exploring what does it look like to unlearn. But yes, I do believe that people can change. Do I also believe that there's a subset of people that have made a firm decision not to change? Absolutely. And that's why the whole notion of we have to bring everyone along is not always realistic. So we have to define what does bringing everyone along look like? Does it mean that whatever the non-negotiables and the behaviors that are indicative of creating harm, are we now holding people accountable in that regard? But we're not always going to be able to change people's hearts and minds. I am more about, can we create a culture and an environment where we are very explicit, though, about what are those behaviors that fall within the constructs of how in which we view inclusive behaviors and leadership versus right. what's not? And when those non-negotiables are being breached, then we have a choice to make. And that takes leadership. That takes leadership. What are we going to tolerate? What we tolerate will continue. And so if we allow those behaviors to continue, then we are making a decision on our own, even as leaders, and that this is okay. Right. And it's not okay. Right. And that leads to a toxic work culture. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also in organizations, and I'm going to ask you the questions, what are the most prominent obstacles organizations have right now, you think? Yeah, there's, there's so many that come to mind. One of which is not fully operationalizing a lens of DEI throughout all aspects of the organization. I often talk about the difference between activity versus impact. Activity has a start and an end date. And don't get me wrong, there can be some value right. to DEI activity, like maybe some type of cultural event. But if we aren't careful, it is just a start and an end date in this for a moment. Right. I think that one of the challenges and the obstacles is that people, organizations will approach solving for DEI in a very surface way instead of peeling back all the layers, getting to the crux of the matter, identifying the root causes of issues that are that's compromising equity and inclusion and belonging and solving for it there. And when they have that mindset, it tends to look like an activity of some sort. Rather, I think the bigger opportunity to sustain the work and the change process that needs to occur is considering how do we approach this with the lens of creating meaningful, sustainable impact. And that is looking at systems, policies, procedures, culture. And oftentimes what that entails is being committed through human capital, financial capital, to have a comprehensive DEI strategic plan that is an overlay to your organizational strategic plan that looks at all areas of operations. We have to institutionalize this work. Yes, the HR piece is a big piece because, you know, organizations, their, their biggest investment is the human capital, but it's bigger than just the, the people aspect. It's also about our processes. It's also about our procurement you know, practices. Are we including 
ethnic minority and veteran owned and women owned and LGBTQ plus business owners into the consideration set for bidding and procurement opportunities? You know, how and which are we going to market and appealing to this broad, you know, audience? How are we ensuring a sense of belonging for those diverse and underrepresented or underestimated talent that we're bringing into the organization? Otherwise, if we're recruiting them and we're getting them in, that's just activity. Because if we are creating the culture and the environment that allows them to feel like they have full opportunity for success, where they can grow and thrive and have psychological safety to feel like they can show up at their best, then we're just going to have a revolving door. And so the biggest obstacle that I see is that organizations are not taking this holistic approach, but rather they're trying to solve for it in a very surface way that yields just activity, 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 and not really looking at it from a systems change impact perspective. Right. You know, something comes up. I had read an article online and I know the state of Indiana and Idaho had banned K-12 transgenders from partaking in physical education Yes, from K-12. to And we had a conversation with someone in Indiana working for the government. And he was saying that, you know, it's interesting that There's such a holistic approach into having inclusivity, but then at the same time, when working with entities that are very, like you said, dogmatic or, you know, conservative in their mindset, it's very difficult to be able to have those conversations because that mindset has already been ingrained. I know the two governors had, and I don't like to talk about politics, but at the same time, they vetoed it. And now they wanted to have a transgender training. And Mm -hmm. I think that's right. That's where it really needs to happen. And not a one-off training where you take a LinkedIn course or any course. And then you say, okay, I've checked the box. It's actually reframing the cultural mindset of the organization. Yeah, I'm not a fan of trying to solve for huge systemic issues with the training. I think that learning and development is important. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of learning and development, but it needs to be an ongoing strategy where we are continuing to find ways to build people's knowledge, right? And because this is not something that can be a one and done to use to use your language, it has to be something that we continually expose ourselves to, and to, to deepen our knowledge. I mean, once you reach a certain point, I feel like with organizations, they will sense we've done all that we need to do. You know, we've provided the training. Now we need to be able to expect that everyone's going to fully align with every content that found its way into the training. And that's not how this works, right? It's also about what are we doing to help ensure that the best practices and, you know, the tools that were maybe made available through the learning and development experiences. And that's usually how we talk about them at NWC. We don't like to use the word training because training sounds like a destination. We need an ongoing strategy of learning and development experiences of all types. Some may be very formal, some could be informal, but through that, we're helping to build up people's knowledge base, not just with the knowledge transfer, but also with the tools and the skill sets. And we're finding ways to ensure that from an organizational perspective, we are seeing how people are leveraging them. We have to connect the dots for individuals, right? What does this look like within the confines of our organization? How can this inclusive practice now really take root in the way in which we interact with each other, the way in which we collaborate? How does it align with our value sets and our guiding principles as an organization? 
we have to take it a step further. And that's also one of those areas that I feel like sometimes organizations have missteps because something will occur, right? And it's very reactionary. So now we're going to offer training. And then we're going to expect that because we've offered this training and we made it mandatory that now everyone's going to be on perfect behavior, right? That's not how this works. Right. Yeah. Right. And incorporating a DEI strategy, I know there is a lot that goes before and after in discovering what the organization has in place, if they do have something in place, how do you think they should incorporate a DEI strategy, you know, into employee experience practices? Yeah, well, first and foremost, in order to be able to most effectively align your employee life cycle with the lens of DEI, you have to have a pulse on the current state of the organization. And I think the best way to do that is not go off of theory or hunches or just anecdotal information. Certainly, you can have some insight that's gleaned from all of those assets I just mentioned. But more importantly, I believe in leveraging evidence-based data because first and foremost, when you have that data, it tells a story. And most often from my experience, all data presents information as opportunity. It can either be data that sheds a light on some areas that is compromising maybe the overall workplace experience for certain individuals, or it even could be data that allows us to see where we need to be reinforcing some things, you know, amplifying Mm -hmm. it, maybe doing more of it. So sometimes we approach the process of an audit or an assessment as what are we trying to find that's wrong? You know, what are the aha points and, and the gotcha points? And that's not how we should be viewing or even considering going into a process of doing a deep dive cultural DEI assessment. Rather, we should see all data as opportunity. And we should see it as a way to give us a clearer picture of our current baseline. That Mm. information is so useful to then determining what should find its way into a DEI strategic plan. How do we prioritize all of those elements, right? And it's not just about gathering the data and looking at it from aggregate totals, we need to really dissect that data. We need to disaggregate that data and look at it across different dimensions of diversity, different populations and communities. Because I can tell you that if your organization is not incredibly representative of so many different dimensions of diversity and you're looking at just your aggregate totals, then you're probably going to see some high percentages, right? And that could send this false sense of we are okay. We're doing great. There's no room for improvement. But once we disaggregate the data and we look at it across maybe your LGBTQ plus, you know, population, your black and brown colleagues, the story usually is different. And so I'm a firm believer that if you really are after impact and not activity, you're going to take the time and you're going to invest the dollars to make sure that you're doing a deep dive assessment where you're leveraging both qualitative and quantitative data collection strategies. You are, again, really interrogating the data across different data collection points to see where there's a relationship there. And then you're using that to inform what are some of those recommendations that needs to find its way into the final plan. And then with the plan, You aren't just thinking about what are those action areas and focus areas of opportunity that we need to prioritize, but what are the accountability mechanisms that we also need to align with those action items? What are the tracking and measurement frameworks that allows us to know if we are successfully reaching the desired output? Hmm. And so 
Your question was around how do we do this in the sense of it impacting effectively the employee life cycle? Well, it starts first with gathering the data, not being afraid of the data and really leveraging the data. For us, if someone just wants an assessment, but they haven't also talked about what they plan to do with the data, we are very cautious. And that's usually a red flag for us because sometimes it means we're just getting the data to get the data. If you don't plan to do anything with the data, you're going to have an adverse effect of actually just creating this exercise where you're asking people to lean into their vulnerabilities, to take the time to participate in a survey or a focus group or one-to-one conversation and then not do anything with it. That is actually taking a step back and that can do more harm than it can good. And so one of the counsel that we often provide is do not undergo this deep dive assessment process where you're engaging your employees into this process, giving them this false sense of hope around some type of change that potentially could occur if you don't plan to do anything with the data. Right. In essence, there has to be follow through. Oh, absolutely. That feedback loop is critical and not even follow through by way of how do we now implement some of the information that we learned into a plan? But also, I think that we owe it to those in which have centered their voice and given their time to close the feedback loop by sharing what did we learn, right? Sometimes organizations are hesitant to really police the final report to where they don't want to share all the details. And I do think that there should be collaboration around what is shared and what's not, but not in a way to where you are lacking the transparency that I feel like is so crucial for this whole exercise. And I think that it's serving organizational leaders well when they lean into that. And be vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. To say there's some areas of opportunity here that we're going to prioritize that we're going to give some consideration to. Sometimes people will say, well, I don't want to ask these certain sets of questions because we know that we can't change that. And usually Mm -hmm. my counsel is, well, why don't we ask those questions still? Because it gives you an opportunity to say, this is what we heard and this is what we can and cannot do. Just be forthright with that. And it gives people the agency to be able to know exactly where you stand. And if that's a non-negotiable for them, then so be it. That's the case. Because whether or not they will articulate that that's a non-negotiable for them, then they are in essence probably silently creating their exit strategy anyway, if you don't do anything about it, you know? So I think there's a lot to be learned about the work that happens before building a DEI strategy and plan is how are you going to build it? And the best way is to build it from evidence-based data that allows you to be even more targeted around your approach to addressing some of those challenges that could surface from the data that's collected. Right. And I think it's crucial to take that step to be able to understand, like you said, where their pulse is at so that you can have a broader understanding of where to go from there and not to take a step back because that's probably even more detrimental to the employees because they've taken the time to do the surveys and to do the feedbacks. Mm -hmm. And for them, it gives them a sliver of light and hope that things might change. So it's imperative for the leaders of organizations to not take a step back, but to keep moving forward so they can understand what to do based on the evidence that they've gathered to move forward and to create a more inclusive workspace. And to repeat that process, you know, it's not, this should not be a one and done. I mean, yes, once you've gathered the data and you've made some adjustments, then you want to, you know, a year or two later, maybe re-engage all of the employees to see how you've been able to change perceptions and attitudes. So that's crucial as well. What's always surprising to me is at the completion of an exercise when organizational leaders, which just happens quite often, will say, well, what's our score? What's our grade, right? right. 
So I'm finding it now appropriate to, in the assessment planning, to make sure that we're educating around, this is not to get a score. It is to give you a baseline, but it's not about a score because the bottom line is that if you aren't at 100%, there's room for growth and improvement, right? You know, and, and that's another reason why I'm not a big fan of benchmarking in the traditional sense. To me, right. when organizations ask for benchmarking, what they're really looking for is a score or a grade against how they perform against others right. and maybe their industry. And to me, I think that's the wrong way to look at it because, again, if you are seeking a score to validate if you're doing good, bad, or in the middle, then I find that sometimes you're less committed to whatever that margin of growth and improvement could be, even if it's just 10%, right? Right. And so for me, benchmarking is more about what are some best practices that we can glean from other organizations that we could then scale to size for our organization? We can modify given the nuances of our organizations, but not so much of to give me a ranking or a score. Because if there's room for improvement, then I do not want you being benchmarked against another organization to stifle your ability and to be a crutch from you then taking it to the next level and improving and growing. And so that's something that I'm finding interesting as I navigate these conversations with, with many organizational leaders. Right. And is that a challenge for you? Yeah. So, so Rachel, I believe that when identifying a consultant partner, it is a two-way street and that the client is, you know, vetting the consultant partner to make sure that they are in good alignment with what the output is that they're seeking. And the same holds true for the consultant partner. And so for me, my why in doing this work is I want to be aligned with brands and organizations that care deeply enough to not see this as compliance work, to not see this as checking a box, but to really be after the impact. And so questions like that, it tells me one to two things, that maybe that's where their mindset is at that point. And once I engage with them further and share different perspective, are they able to shift? Are they able to then expand their mindset to understand, well, yes, maybe I should be looking at it as a score, you know, trying to get a score, if you will. And that to me is important. So the only time it becomes a challenge is if they can't see beyond that mindset of, am I at an A, B, C, D? And if I'm at like a B or A, even if there's room for growth and improvement, then I'm okay. (laughs) That to me is a red flag. It is a sign that maybe the intentions aren't rooted in the best perspective and the place that it should be. Right. Yeah. I agree. You know, you've dropped some pretty amazing nuggets and we could probably go on for another hour about the topic. What would be your parting words today for us? You know, I'm real big on centering belonging. And as Mm -hmm. a part of this broad DEI conversation, I think that that's also really important topic. And one of the things that I often share is that is hard for any person, regardless of their demographics and background, but any person to show up at their best in any environment if they're always questioning whether or not they belong. Mm. So if they're questioning, do I belong here? Am I seen and heard? Am I valued? Do I have full opportunity for success? Do my opinions count? Am I safe? If people are questioning those things, then they are not showing up at their best. And when I think about all of the different organizations that are doing mission-critical work, right, in so many regards, when people that are a part of those organizations do not feel that sense of belonging, they're not bringing their A-game to that environment, which means they're not showing up at their best. 
And when we consider that, it should give us all pause, pause in a way to where we question what is our responsibility within my sphere of influence that I can help create those opportunities for belonging? What does that look like? And how can I now lean into that more? I think that's an important question that every single one of us should be asking around every environment that we find ourselves dwelling in, whether it's the community work we're doing, our homes, our families, you know, the workplace. But how do we, within our sphere of influence, create that sense of belonging? It doesn't take a certain position or title. It just takes a willingness and to lean into that choice to say, yes, this is important enough for me to care enough about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. As we reach the top of the Diversity Connects Us Hour, I hope you all enjoyed this conversation. It has been illuminating. I want to encourage you to connect with Dr. Nika White on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for all of the information you shared. It was a great pleasure to have you. This podcast highlights lived experiences, inspirational stories of strength and tenacity. We always share profound and courageous dialogues that influence diversity, equity, and inclusion by breaking the barriers and labels of stereotypes, confronting biases, and offering best practices to achieve a more cultural mindset. Nika, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Oh, me too.